Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Joshua chapter 4. We're going to take a break from our series in Acts for the next four or five weeks uh, because we're coming into Christmas, believe it or not, and because I felt led by the Lord to speak about this passage of Scripture this morning as we mark one year together as a church. I just want to say how blessed Julie and I uh, feel and our family feels uh, to just be part of this church, uh, let alone to lead it. And it is beyond expression uh, how humbling it's been to see how faithful the Lord has been to Harbor Rock over the last year and how amazingly committed uh, you all are to this church family. I was talking to Pastor Simbola back in May down in Chicago, and he asked how the church was doing. And I said, I honestly don't think I would trade pulpits with anybody in the country right now. And I hope every single one of you um, is aware this morning just how good the Lord's been and how much he's guided us the right way and how perfect his timing has been, and how generous he has been in helping us, and how he's protected us from the enemy's attack and men's criticisms and everything else. We know it because we've lived it the past 365 days, right? That song the choir sang was not just a bunch of words. That was a personal testimony. That was biographical, that uh, we praise the Lord for how he has worked in our lives. How many know worship is best when it comes from our hearts? that it's not just words that we just sing and perform and whatever. When our experiences have taught us more about the Lord and when He has shaped how we think and act and feel, that's when praise becomes sincere. That's when praise becomes passionate. And when you can sing as a personal testimony to what God has done, that's when worship really hits home. So let's not forget that God's mercy is fresh every morning and that He is gracious and compassionate and that he's slow to anger, and he's rich in love, and that his love endures forever. I am struck again this morning that his faithfulness is beyond comprehension. And I hope that we as a church never lose sight of that. So, on our one-year anniversary, I'd like for us to study this passage in Joshua 4. This is a passage I've loved for many, many years. And I remember the night the Lord gave us the name Harbor Rock Tabernacle for our church, uh, that I immediately thought of this text. Uh, when Israel was coming out of the wilderness and moving into the promised land. And if you were at the fall special services, you remember that Pastor Toledo talked about that subject, about how God has brought us out of wilderness and God has bringing us into a promised land that is specific for us. And that was a word from the Lord for us, that we need to continue to discern uh, what God is doing and the path that he's leading. He's given us a very strong foundation. And he has plans for us that will excite us and they'll challenge us. And they'll stretch our faith in new ways. And we have no idea what's going to happen in the next year. Could be a building, could not be a building. Could be people who die, could be people who are born. Uh, Every year has changed. And we have no idea as a church what the Lord wants to do, but we're going to follow him when he does it. And it is vital then that we continue to seek him and that we stay dependent on him. And that when he leads, we follow without question. Now, Israel had struggled with that, and this is a defining point in their history. As the book opens, they're moving out of the desert, and they're transitioning from Moses to Joshua, and they're facing uncertainty, but they're armed with the promises of God. And they have their faith and spiritual resolve now, tested like it's never been tested before. But God, who is merciful, always merciful, He has a supernatural confirmation here, of his power and his authority and his guidance as they prepare to go into the promised land. He he reaffirms in chapter 2 that the land is theirs 
as chapter 3 opens, he gives them very specific instructions as to how they're to cross the Jordan River. And then starting in chapter 3, verse 14, you can just glance at it as I talk, the priests enter the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and the water of the river backs up and stands up in a heap miles away, north of the crossing site, and the priests stand in the middle of the river on dry ground, and all of Israel crosses over the dry ground into Canaan. Now let's pick it up just with that background, chapter 4 and verse 1. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you'll lodge tonight. So Joshua, verse 4, called the twelve men whom he'd appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you. So when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Then the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests were carried, who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. And they are there to this day. For the priests who carried the Ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people turned and crossed. When all the people had finished crossing, the ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. Now, I want to talk this morning about why the Lord had the people of Israel build a memorial of rocks once they entered the promised land and what it means to us individually and as a church. Now, when you think about the journey that they had had from Egypt to Canaan, there were so many memorable things that had happened that you would think that God would have said, that's important to commemorate. From the plagues that delivered them from Egypt to the Red Sea that parted so they had dry ground to walk through and then swallowed up Pharaoh's troops, to the manna and the quail on the water, to the giving of the law at Sinai, to the presence of God descending into the holy place of the tabernacle, God had done one amazing, miraculous thing after another, and yet they had never built a physical memorial at any of those places. But here, when they cross a much smaller body of water, just the river, in most places as wide as this room, when they crossed the Jordan River, which would have paled in comparison to the whole Red Sea experience, the Lord says, set up a permanent memorial for people to see for generations. Now, it's interesting to see how the Lord prioritizes things in our lives, and there's a spiritual lesson here that we need to make sure that we don't miss. For centuries, people have tried to explain away the miracles of the wilderness, that, that the, the plagues were just a profound natural phenomenon, that the Red Sea was really the Reed Sea, just this little shallow body of water, and that somehow the wind blew and 
and it kind of parted a little bit, and there was just very strong, of course, it doesn't explain how it blew in both directions, so the sides stood up, but don't let the facts hit you. And, and that Moses found a natural spring, and that the birds were just migrating and flew low. Whatever people can do to try to justify their doubt. But it's interesting that nobody ever talks about this miracle. It's interesting that nobody ever tries to explain it away. Instead, they just ignore it. Because there is no scientific explanation for how water can back up against gravity and stack up in a place and stay there. You see, when the people finally trusted the Lord and it came time for them to experience the certainty of His provision, He did it in a way that could only be explained that God did it. And that's what the Lord wants us to know and to believe and to think every day. That He can provide, that He's willing to provide, that He's faithful to provide, and that He will provide, sometimes in very dramatic ways, when we just trust Him. And whatever you're dealing with this morning, whatever your circumstances are, that truth is for you. And it is profoundly simple, but it is the core of our beliefs and it's the foundation of our spiritual walk. And just as Israel learned after four decades of doubt and fear and resistance, you can have confidence in the Lord and how many know He will never fail you or forsake you? Never. Now the way they cross leaves absolutely no question, not only that the Lord had done it, but also that he was placing himself in the center of the situation and that he expected to be in the center of their lives and their nation. And for so long, the people of God had missed that principle. They had ignored it and fought it and rebelled against it and complained about it and looked for other alternatives and intentionally forgot about it, but not anymore. If there was one thing the wilderness had taught them, once all but two of them had died and a new generation had risen up that had never experienced any of those miracles. It is that the Lord expects His people to love Him and trust Him and obey Him and follow Him. And all of that was encapsulated in this one event. Priests are standing in the middle of the water or where the water used to be with the ark, the presence of God, and the dry ground reminds them of His mercy and His consistent faithfulness. And the promised land is on the other side. And they're crossing on the dry ground and they're going over there. And all of it is right there in that one picture. There's no way Israel could miss this. But just to make sure, look at what the Lord says. Build a memorial. Get twelve rocks, one for each tribe. Take them from the middle of the dry riverbed right around the feet of the priests as they stand holding the symbol of my presence and bring them over into the new land and stack them on top of each other as a sign so when your children ask what they mean, you can say the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. That pile of stones was a reminder of the Lord's hand of blessing and it was a clear reminder that they and we need to remember and learn as we walk with the Lord. And I believe out of this, there are four, at least four essential truths that those rocks represent that especially apply to us as a church today as we remember the last year and look forward 
to the years that we have ahead until the Lord returns. So let me just give you these four things and then we'll pray. I encourage you to write some things down this morning so the Lord would continue to impress your heart throughout the week. First principle of the rocks. The 12 rocks remind us that the wilderness has a very important purpose. The wilderness has a very important purpose. Those 40 years that they had spent wandering had been a spiritual proving ground. God was testing the authenticity and the sincerity of their faith. And for four decades, they had failed miserably. They had not been faithful to the Lord. And Israel's problem, and we often wrestle with the same issue in our own lives, is that they resisted the lessons of the wilderness rather than yielding to them. When we are in the desert, listen now, physically, emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually, when we're in the desert, the Lord uses that time as an intense spiritual training course to get us straight spiritually. So once we enter the wilderness, the challenge for us is twofold. First of all, whether we can get past the emotional internal turmoil to see the bigger spiritual picture that the Lord has either allowed or ordained for our benefit. The first obstacle we have to get past is, uh-oh, I'm in crisis. And then once we get past that, the second challenge is once we understand that His hand is in it, are we willing then to submit to His work of refining and maturation, or will we choose to resist it? Now the Bible's full of examples of people who learn the merit of the wilderness. And we've talked about this before, but let me just refresh your memory. There was Joseph, rejected by his brothers, accused even though he was innocent. He became a man who influenced people spiritually, and he learned that God is both just and merciful, and that he defends his children. Moses, who was not allowed to hide by God after he ran away from Egypt, God dealt with his insecurity because he was using that as an excuse, and he became a leader who understood the righteous authority of God. David, who was isolated and, and, and disrespected even by his family, and then was chased by the ungodly king that he had been anointed to replace, he became a man who understood the sufficiency and faithfulness of God and the joy of being in his presence. Elijah, who was lonely and struggled with self-pity and had a hit on his life, he became a prophet who saw the power of God's hand. He saw how God confronts evil and he saw God's expectation that no matter what the circumstances, we are continuing in the work of ministry. Job, who was stripped of everything, who had friends who couldn't, been, couldn't have been more of a downer, who couldn't have been more of a discouraging voice to his spirit. He became a man who understood the sovereignty of God and the restoration of life as a reward for faith. And it goes on and on. Gideon, Ruth, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Joseph and Mary, Paul, John, all of them. They all experienced the lessons of the wilderness and the purpose of the wilderness. I don't know about you, but I've been in the wilderness a number of times. Because apparently pride's a problem with me. I know, it's a shock. Pride's a problem. So the Lord always has to take us out of the wilderness and get to a place where it's just Him and us. Where there's nothing else to rely on, where He strips us down and says, I'm going to teach you that I'm far more interested in the fact that you trust me 
and learn from me and move forward as I lead than I am in you holding on to your self-reliance. God doesn't care about our self-reliance except when it gets in the way of our relationship with him, and it always does. So he uses the wilderness to say, I'm going to teach you about following me. And as we learn and mature in him, and what I quickly realized last fall as the church came into the, into the existence, is that the wilderness is so good, and the wilderness is so important. I make no mistake, I hate it. And it's hard. But the lessons, is, lessons and the purposes of the wilderness are powerful and life-changing. And they have shaped my faith and they've shaped your faith in ways that would not have been possible unless it was just us and the Lord. And that's why he takes us there in the first place. But how many know that he doesn't just dump us and walk away? God doesn't just take you out in the wilderness and say, sorry, learn it. Praise his name. He always has a well-watered place that he wants to take us to when we've learned the lesson. Israel wandered for 40 years, but God was always taking them toward the place of milk and honey. He was always taking them, even when they circled day after day. And if you look at Deuteronomy 2, finally God says, you've gone around this mountain long enough, because apparently they just kept circling this mountain, circling this mountain, circling this mountain. Finally God said, enough already, let's go. Even when they were circling, even when they were in that holding pattern over O'Hare, God always was pointing them toward the place of abundance, the place of blessing. And that's the second truth of the memorial. The 12 rocks remind us that the Lord provides a dry path when the water seems too deep. After 40 years of barren desert, after 40 years of no trees, no water, no springs, no lushness, no fruit, no nothing, how good did the Jordan River look to them? How good did it seem when they got to that place after years in the parched wilderness and all of a sudden there was the freshness and the lushness and the greenness of the Jordan River Valley. I mean, literally, it's like a stripe down the center of the wilderness. Look at it online. Look at an aerial shot of the Jordan River. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's all wilderness and a green strip. And right in the middle of that green strip is the blue water. And when you get there, as you come down from Jerusalem to Jericho, all of a sudden, ah, I can kind of breathe again. There's oxygen here. But there was a problem as they got to the Jordan River. Rather than it being a source of refreshing, it stood as an obstacle to where they were going. And that was especially true because when they got there, it was at flood stage. Imagine their initial fear. If you would, guys, put up that first picture of what uh, flood stage of the river... Oh, Wrong one. Go back a slide if you would. There you go. That's what flood stage looks like. I think we have one more I can show you. Now, that would be great for whitewater rafting, wouldn't it? Not so good if you've got a four-year-old and you want to get them to the other side. Because if you go to the next slide, this is what the river usually looks like. Even that's going to be a challenge. But imagine as they finally get there after 40 years... And the fatalists in the bunch, because you know there's always some in the crowd, right? The fatalists go, oh, great. Finally, we get here to the Jordan River, and it's flooding. Now, this, this is good. Good job, Joshua. Way to go. 
Can you hear them in the background? There's a couple of those, right? A couple million people, there's got to be a couple of those guys. So they get to the river, and it's at flood stage. And not only does it show that the Lord has a good old sense of humor, it also shows that the Lord sometimes intentionally makes things look extra challenging to prove how great he is. God is not a narcissist. He just knows how easily he doubts, and he loves to prove our doubts are completely wrong. It would be enough that he stacks up the water in a huge pile miles to the north, so there's no imminent threat to them, but he goes a step further, no pun intended. Look at the text, and he gives them dry ground to walk across. Now, Israel's nature and human nature would have been impressed by the water stack, but then they would have been irritated that there was mud they had to slog through. So God makes the path dry and easy. Listen, when the Lord is leading in your life, the path is smooth. You may say, well, there are all kinds of big rocks in the middle. Yes, you gave us dry ground. It's very impressive. You stacked up the water and that there's not any mud here. But, but now I've got to get around rocks. And I believe, and let me speak for the Lord in the vernacular here. Forgive me if I'm wrong. I think God says, are you kidding me? Really? I stacked up the water. It's miles upstream. There's no threat to you. I made dry ground. It's not mud. And now you're worried about the rocks? Let me show you what I'm going to do with the rocks. When God leads you, the path is smooth. When God leads a church, the path is smooth. That is how I have known for the past year that this church is of the Lord. Because God only honors and blesses what honors Him. The Red Sea had been dry ground, and this was dry ground, and Israel had a lot of experience walking on dry sand, didn't they? And they had to marvel at the fact that the Lord's provision was so complete, so they didn't have any obstacles, nothing to distract them. They could just walk to the other side. But God's not done teaching them. He instructs them, take a man from every tribe. This is in verse 2. Send them back into the riverbed. Get 12 stones, 12 rocks from the middle of the river, right where the priests are standing, and take them over to the promised land and set them up as a memorial. Now, I don't want you to miss the location. They weren't supposed to get rocks from the edge where they could equivocate in their faith and explain that the rocks had been easy to get. He says, go out there in the middle, go out to the dry ground where there's no possible explanation other than that I did it, and I want you to notice your proximity to the ark. Because the ark is my presence, and again, I want you to remind, be reminded that the only reason you can cross over this river and go to the land that I promised Abraham is because I opened up the path. This is the third principle. The twelve rocks remind us that the Lord is in the center of our plans when we listen to his voice and obey. The Lord is in the center of our plans when we listen to his voice and obey. What a promise that is for prayer. That when we align ourselves with him, he lines himself right in the middle of everything that's going on in our lives. I love Psalm 46. And it gives assurance of this truth. Listen to what it says. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, the Jordan River at flood stage, 
Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High, and God's in the midst of her. She will not be moved. How much more did those verses mean as they're looking at the priest standing in the middle of the water where the water was with the ark? There's a river that makes glad the city of God and God's in the midst of her. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Cease striving and know that I'm God. I'll be exalted among the nations and I'll be exalted in the earth. God is in the midst of the river that makes his people glad. And it had to be seared into their hearts and seared into their minds as they stood on the shore and they looked back and there was no water and the priests are still standing there with the ark and the men go down and they start to pull stones from the dry riverbed. How much did that change their perspective when they came to Jericho and they came to Ai and they fought the battles to take the land? Let me ask you this morning, do you have the same confidence in the Lord? How has your perspective changed? How has your faith grown because of the time when God stood in the middle of the rivers that were roaring around you. The only time the churning water will intimidate us is when we have not listened to his voice and obeyed. Don't forget, God doesn't back up the water as they're still standing on the shore. The priests had to step out by faith carrying the, wa- carrying the ark. And as soon as they put their foot in the water, the people literally saw the water back up, back up, back up, back up, back up. And it wasn't slow. They had to step out there in faith. Now you're thinking, well, that was easy. God had spoken directly to them. Let me refer you to the book that you're holding in your hand. This is 66 books of God speaking directly to us. And it's easy to say, well, if I, if I just could hear God's voice audibly, I would really trust Him. You do hear God's voice audibly. It's right there. And the Bible says, blessed are those who don't see and believe, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's more blessed not to hear His voice audibly and to read this and take it by faith and say, Lord, You're good. You're so good and You're so faithful and I'm going to trust You. Chapter 3, verse 5. Before all this happened, God had said, consecrate yourselves. Because tomorrow I'm going to do wonders among you. Consecrate means to be holy and set apart. It means to prepare to be dedicated to the Lord. And it's the prerequisite for God doing wonders around us. And listen, those wonders don't always have to be parted waters. Inside this room is story after story after story about how the Lord has worked in your life in the last year. I'm, I'm almost tempted to ask four or five of you to come up here and give us 60 seconds of what the Lord's done in your life in the last year. Because I guarantee you, we could get a line. Not about this church. Don't get me wrong. Please understand me this morning. Not about Harbor Rock, but just about how the Lord's worked in your life. How He's led you and called you and healed you and, and in some places allowed you to go through crisis so you would learn to trust in him and it's all because you listened and obeyed some of you are still in that listening and discerning phase and i encourage you do not stop do not turn away create yourself because he is going to do mighty 
wonders in our midst. Listen, I'm no prophet, and I'm not just trying to stir you up so you'll be all excited. I believe that with all my heart, God is going to do wonders in our midst. He is going to lead us in unique ways. He has a leading for every church. He has a leading for every believer. And He will lead us. And His actions toward us in the past and in the future are the fourth and final purpose of the memorial. Because the 12 rocks remind us that we need to keep talking about what the Lord's done. Look at verse 6 for a minute and let's draw this to a close. Joshua says, when your children ask later, what do these stones mean? Look at the next two words. I never saw them as clearly as I did this week. What do these stones mean? Tell me the next two words. To you. He personalized it. Now what's with the stones already? What's going on with that? Kind of weird looking. What's that all about? He says, your children will come up to you and they will say to you, Dad, Mom, what do those stones mean to you? It's totally different when you add those two extra words. And here's what you're going to tell them. The Lord worked in this place. The Lord worked in this place and He cut off the water before His ark. Now what really hit me is Joshua doesn't say, you'll tell them that we finally got to the promised land after 40 years. (laughs) Okay, (sighs) finally there. That's what I want you to tell them, that we finally made it. No. I want you to tell them one thing. The Lord stopped the water before His presence. Now Israel, don't lose focus. Harbor Rock, don't lose focus. It's not what's in it for us. It's how great He is. Remember one year ago. Remember the uncertainty, the questions, the need for direction. And then remember those prayer meetings and communion in the upper room and the details coming together and the excitement that the Lord was working in new ways in our midst. Julie and I talk about it all the time. We will never forget that image of coming around the corner up those stairs and seeing all of you standing in the hallway with your soccer chairs. Just coming to pray. We'll never forget Ann Vrabic, who's here this morning. Good to see you, Annie. We'll never forget Ann Vrabic looking back and going, well, when do we start? Such confidence, such faith. Even yesterday, as we were amazed at all the children and adults that came to practice and the people setting up the rooms for lunch and the gift of all the kitchen supplies from Shetty and those who helped get it to the, to the ministry center. And Julie and I got home and she hit me on the arm and said, you have a church. I mean, still, a year later, we're, we're amazed. And I commend you for your faith and your vision and your sacrifice and your support. And I don't want us to ever lose the awe and joy over what the Lord has done. But He has a lot to do in the days ahead. And I don't want us to get complacent or ever forget. Because forgetfulness is sin. That was Israel's sin. That's why... God says to us in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord with all your soul and all that's in within you. And then He commands us, listen now, I'm done. Do not forget any of His benefits. 
that He pardons all our iniquities and heals all our diseases and redeems our lives from the pit. And, and oh, this is unthinkable, that He crowns us with loving kindness and compassion and that He satisfies our years with good things and that He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us for our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. How many know that's true this morning? Look at that picture of those rocks. That's a memorial of God's goodness. It's the reminder of His faithfulness. A few months ago, the Lord gave me a leading to establish 12 clear values, core values for our church that will define our purpose and goals as ministry and as a body. We're going to call them 12 rocks. And next week, I'm going to give you a card that you can keep as a reminder of God, what, what God expects from us. And they'll be on our website for everybody to see. And as a preview, let me just tell you what number 12 is. Number 12 is humble remembrance. Continual gratitude for the Lord's faithfulness. Because as we seek His leading ahead of us, listen now, we must never forget how He's led us so far. Remember. Remember. What God has done before, He will continue to do in the future. He will lead us faithfully. And as we trust Him and obey Him and follow His voice, His leading will be beyond any expectation that we have. I want to ask us to do something different this morning. I want to ask you to stand. And before we sing, I spoke shorter this morning, so I get this privilege. I'd like for us to pray with gratitude for God's past provision. And I'd like this to pray with confidence for His future leading. And I'm going to ask some of you to lead us in those prayers. I want you to pray as the Lord leads. I want you to be respectful because as many people as can pray, that would be wonderful. And I thought this morning, I thought, well, maybe we'll call people forward, those who want to pray about our future. I thought, no, we're going to do this differently. You're under no obligation to do this. Nobody's going to be looking, so it's just between you and the Lord. But I want to suggest that if you're willing to trust the Lord and follow His leading for you and for our church, that as we pray, you lift your hands to heaven because that's biblical. It's not weird or mystical. The Bible says lift holy hands as you pray. So as an expression of dependence on God, because when a child needs their parent, what do they do? When they're standing in the crib, they do this, right? That's the principle. This is not to show off or to say, look at me, I'm waving my hands. Hey, That's not what that is. This is saying, Lord, we depend on you. Lord, we praise you. You're, you're our father. We're your children. We're just... So as we pray, as some of you pray, if you want to trust the Lord for your life and for His leading for our church, as we praise Him and as we ask Him to lead us, you don't have to do it. Nobody's going to judge you if you don't. But as we pray, I want to encourage you just to lift your hands to the Lord and let's praise Him and let's call on His name. I'll close when we're done, but, but just some of you now, just praise the Lord.
just offer up our request to him that he lead us. Let's pray together.